0: This is Dylan FM, the podcast that goes deep into the work and world of Bob Dylan. If you love Dylan, you're in the right place, with your host, Craig Daniloff.
1: This is part two of our conversation with Michael Gray on chapter four of Song and Dance Man, Language and Tradition. The chapter is called Dylan's Use of Language Towards Complexity. In the first episode, we talked about the transformations in Bob Dylan's songwriting throughout his first four albums, and ended with Spanish Harlem Incident, a song Gray called significant in Bob's move towards more complex language. Today, we continue to the heart of that complexity, discussing the songs on Highway 61 Revisited, including Like a Rolling Stone and Desolation Row, and a number of songs from Blonde on Blonde, including Stuck Inside of Mobile and Visions of Johanna plus others. Our special guest reader again is Anne Margaret Daniel, goes by Venetian Blonde online. She's a writer and professor known for her work on Bob Dylan and F. Scott Fitzgerald. There's a link to her website in the show notes. This is a bonus episode for our FM Plus and Premium members, but it's being shared in our public feed through September the 6th. See the show notes for information on becoming a member and getting access to over a 100 extended and bonus episodes from this show, Pod Dylan, The Dylan Taunts, and other FM Podcast Network shows. Now, here's part two of our discussion with Michael Gray. So after... Spanish Harlem, we move on to bringing it all back home. And we're still in this short time period that seems long in, in response to us now. Um, and bringing it all back home, you know, we find Mr. Tambourine Man with the, you know, maybe the most cited skipping reels of rhyme clause that, that everyone talks about. And you talk about it's all right, Ma, as merging an old approach with new language. And that's an album that ends with the famous It's All Over Now, Baby Blue.
2: And, you know, we were still getting used to, well, I was still getting used to how lengthy a Bob Dylan song could be. Uh, And that one's comparatively short. Uh, Like Too Late, it has uh, has that let the dead bury the dead thing in it towards (laughs) the end. Forget the dead you've left, they will not bother you. So we're already we're already back uh, in the language of the, the the Bible, the New Testament, even.
1: Uh, so in the book, in there's a passage just after "It's all right, Ma," where you make an interesting observation about some of these changes, or a different change than than the main linguistic complexity we're talking about. So let's listen to that quote.
0: All these changes seem to stem from Dylan discarding an anger that was the child of optimism and indignation, as, for instance, in Masters of War, that could only be sustained so long as the belief in enlightened congressmen about to heed the call could itself be sustained. Dylan's graduation from the Masters of War approach toward real poetry, the poetry of real experience, can in this way be seen as prompted not by a change in political belief, nor by a rejection of politics which is the same thing but by a change in assessment of his political vision to put it over simply Dylan became a more serious artist when profound political pessimism set in
2: i'd still agree with that i think you know uh, senators congressmen please heed the call i mean that might be that might be pleasant retrospectively when we see him singing it to uh, obama but that's, that's not its main function, and its main function is a naivety, is expressing a naivety that he is losing by the time of bringing it all back home. And he, he's also disillusioned with his own um, protesting, with his own anger. And it's all right, Ma. I mean, sometimes there's a sort of suggestion of acceptance of things, it's all right, Ma. I'm only bleeding. You know, I'm not dead. Uh, but at other times, you know, he's condemning himself as one who's uh, who sings with his tongue on fire, gargled in the right race choir. I love that phrase: "One who sings with his tongue on fire," and that that again, you know, that that uh, that could be straight from the Bible, um, <laughs> and, and it may be. You know, because after all, when we look back at all this stuff, right from blowing in the wind, he brings the Bible into that too. How many ears must one man have? How many eyes must one man have? These are these are both straight from the the Gospels. Anyway, um, anyway, so so what I'm saying by the time of it's all right, Ma, uh, and certainly by the time of what we come on to when we start to look at Highway 61 Revisited is uh, an embarrassment, perhaps, at the naivety of calling for senators and congressmen to please heed the call, whereas Dr. Filth, as I've said somewhere else, Dr. Filth is still around. You know, that sort of language which was called surrealistic, Dr. Filth, he keeps his patients inside of a leather cup. Uh, That's still political, you know. Dr. Filth is a is a is a more hard-headed political designation than please heed the call could ever be, you know. Or, or feeling that it would be possible to to dance on the grave of specific guilty people who were masters of war. You know? The other thing though I want to say in the context of this stuff, um, is that the 1960s, we're in the middle of the 1960s here, and they were a period in which, uh, pessimism and optimism, optimism came cheek by jowl. They, they came together. I mean, first of all, there was, um, you know, the, uh, the liberation the optimism of a boom economy and a freedom from the terrible constraints of the 1950s, economic restraints, uh, social restraints, uh, personal political restraints, particularly for women. Um, And so the 60s, we're in a boom economy, uh, you know, even in Britain, uh, uh, not just the States and uh, uh, and things are, are looking great you know and by 1965 a pivotal year the 60s are exploding um but at the same time that explosion also gives you a new realism about the awfulness of american politics a new recognition and realization of the way that they um, set up coups and Ousted governments all over the Western Hemisphere, uh, all that you know. Uh, and towards the end of the sixties, we get uh, we get the politics of of the real extraordinary. Now it seems extraordinary the 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 radicalism of young Americans uh, who were starting to you know bomb things uh, and be fired upon in turn by troops. So it was a very weird mix of optimism and pessimism. Uh, and I think that that's reflected in what Dylan was writing at that period.
1: It's interesting to demark what you do in the book, It's All Right Ma, as kind of the last protest song. As, it, as we look at this in retrospect, right, there's three albums, maybe in two years. That's the protest period, which obviously out of 60, is a is a small percentage uh, compared to how it dominates, you know, the the image or the, the way yeah. people the way the way people think about him. Conversely, this uh, pessimism, if you will, or 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 lack of optimism, has kind of sustained the last fifty four years since then, <laughs> with few exceptions. And certainly, Dylan's you know kind of political pronouncements—he no longer, other than showing up at We Are the World maybe thinks a song is going to fix anything.
2: <laughs> yeah, but, you know, uh, yeah, I mean, he withdraws from from explicit political comment, if you like, uh, and so do a lot of other people. Uh, a lot of people got their heads bashed in, you know. There's a really interesting book by the guy who was Allen Ginsberg's farm manager, um, a guy uh, whose name slips my mind just at the moment, but, uh, but who was one of those people who uh, he- was a... A lecturer at West Point. And, um, and he was one of those who was entitled to nominate Dylan for the Nobel Prize every year. And he uh, did year after year after year. But anyway, his book uh, about the farm that Allen Ginsberg had up in New York State, the end of the 60s, beginning of the 70s. One of the things that's really great about that book, apart from, apart from bringing out what a really kind and generous and restrained person Ginsburg was in the face of a lot of, you know, assholes turning up and staying and doing none of the work. But the other thing is how virulent the divide was between crew-cut America and long-hair America at that point. It's a brief period, you know, and maybe it ends after uh, the Soledad brothers, when black power starts to sort of calm down. It's a period in which New York society invites black power leaders to its cocktail parties. And Bob Dylan stays silent.
1: The protest period, what was in it, what what wasn't in it, what happened later is a is one of these Dylan topics that can go can can go endlessly.
2: It does continue to resonate, doesn't it? Uh, you know, yeah. as you say, it's a very short period, but it's a period that he's still associated with, because he was changing everything then, and um, and it's also a period which has it has its own longevity. You know, people still appreciate songs like "Masters of War." Uh, One
1: of these of many Dylan things that that he did for a little while, but did so well and so much better than everyone else. Yeah, even he, he remains the best example even though he stopped you know after 30 months or something um sure but let's move forward because as as you say as um highway 61 you know begins and the the, the now famous snare shot heard around the world yeah. starts we 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 do get a different kind of of writing or we at least progress more fully into it which is the subject of this chapter So let's talk about Like a Rolling Stone.
2: Once upon a time, you dressed so fine Through the bumps of time in your prime Then you...
1: You know, you discuss in in the book how it showcases a change from personal to universal. Another observation that's just very interesting in making sense of Dylan, you attribute to a calculated lack of specificity. Uh, So before we discuss this, let's listen to an excerpt about... Like a Rolling Stone.
0: But if this use of language, which is still in transition and Like a Rolling Stone, no longer offers us autobiography, its universal glimpses are of course rendered as through Dylan's eyes. And so, like any great artist, Dylan bequeaths us a part of reality we could not otherwise have received. To render things that are real in a genuinely new way, which takes more than an original style, is actually to have created something new, and at the same time,
2: true. Yeah. Um, I think this brings us back to what T.S. Eliot achieved a generation earlier. And, uh, I, I, you know, all I really want to say about this is, uh, you know, uh, everyone can take what they will from Like a Rolling Stone, but um, this thing about style and content, you know, What I say there about uh, it takes more than an original style, that's a kind of, um, that's a slight, you know, that's in brackets. That's very much in brackets. But what I want to say about that is something which um, the uh, renegade British literary critic F.R. Leavis said, which was, style is inseparable from content. That is, if you say something one way, it's not the same thing you're saying as if you say it a different way uh and this is this is a great literary truth uh and if you will a great truth about records you know and this is why um i mean a very easy demonstration of this is to listen to any american hit single from the uh from let's say 1960 or 62 and then listen to the pathetic British cover version of that same song, which they did all the time because the BBC didn't like to play American records. They liked to play British records. So there was just this whole thing in those days of cover versions all the time, you know. The difference between the one and the other is not a difference of style. It becomes a difference of content. You know, uh, and part of what's unique about Like a Rolling Stone is the whole cacophonous whole of it, which no one else could possibly have created. And even if you'd said the same words in a different way, you'd have been saying something else.
1: We know, we now know because we've listened to the 15 takes or something yeah that but it seems like if take seven would have been released it kind of would not have been like rolling stone that that take exactly got it
2: exactly Um, yeah yeah yeah. one of the one they they try it in three four time don't they at one point like a waltz
1: first that's the 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 first take which was on one of the even earlier bootlegs maybe on biograph even
2: yeah Uh, i think it might have been on that highway 61 interactive cd-rom that came out in whenever cd-roms were groovy it's
1: it's on a shelf right over there yes (laughs) i remember i remember sitting holding it when it was brand new and clicking through the screens and all the there's a there's a youtube video where someone uh uh, someone's captured all the screens and you can watch a video of it now so you don't have to try to rig up a 1980s pc Right. Yeah, the, I, I've actually been thinking about this issue of songs. Exactly your point you just made about the difference in. You know, we often say we hear a song and we say it's a bad song or whatever the words are, and that's a whole issue. But, um, but you hear a, a an early version, and I, I have more Costello examples in mind where it was slow, acoustic. You know, the one he wrote, and then the performance is, you know, one of those early yeah. '80s hyper, and it's you know, the song didn't change. He just found a better way to present it. And it, it didn't become a good song. You know, that's, did it become a good song or was it a good song that wasn't being presented right? It's considered a good song because of the way it's presented. Um, and sure. so maybe we beat that. Um, but at the other end of the same album in and sticking with the theme of language of complexity, one that you cite often, uh, Desolation Row comes up.
2: The beauty parlor is filled with sailors the circus is in town here comes the blind commissioner they've got him in a trance one hand is tied to the tightrope walker the other is in his pants And the so i pulled
1: three paragraphs from a much longer discussion and uh, I'll, I'll get more to this in a minute oh everything yeah. we're discussing here this is an incredible chapter in in the second half you go song by song by song and there's pages of just really incredible analysis that i really think everyone who loves these songs will will really enjoy let's listen to these three paragraphs about desolation row
0: this change seems complete by the time of desolation row a classic illustration of the distinction between accusation and analysis Desolation Row is a brilliant political analysis of American society and shows vividly the connection between its pessimism and a seriousness of intent. In Desolation Row, the imminent disasters are past and present as well as future. The verses pile up and pile up, the sinister intimations pile up with them, and there is no suggestion, no hope in other words, that the crescendo will ever be curtailed. Dylan no longer expects solutions to arise out of reforms or legislation. Neither does he see any point in rallying around the home comforts of we shall overcome. There is no broad solution.
2: The pollution of human values, he, it's a grand phrase, but I, but I think that is his concern. Uh, and that's why at the end he says, don't send me no more letters, no. Not unless you write them from Desolation Row. In other words, you know, don't don't give me any more of this stuff. Um, just get real. It's a lot of people's favourite song. Uh, um, I I feel as if for myself I'm a bit sort of over familiar with it, but that's that's my problem, you know. But the intimations of um, of uh, bad things happening. Uh, you know, the fortune-telling lady has even taken all her things inside. You know, there's just such great expressions of that all the way through the song. Um, and, uh, uh, and of course, uh, what we come to very near the end in a verse that, uh, as we've said before, uh, it, regrettably he doesn't sing anymore, usually. The Titanic sails at dawn. Uh, you know this is this is a very economical phrase for saying doom is imminent
1: that's great i i think as much as people love it maybe for this build up that you just
2: and you the just beautiful heard about. acoustic guitar work
1: <laughs> yeah but i i, well, I was going to say just i think as much as people love the effect of it i don't think well, for me, and I think a lot of people, it, it's very hard to understand. I mean, even these kind of commentary, you know, this is a good example of kind of opening it up because that the fortune tone lady takes all her things inside. I've heard right 700 million times um, yeah. this idea that, you know, even the, the professionally hopeful are losing faith is not yes. a, a recognition that I, I had made before. So this is, this is great. Yeah. in the the book you go through can you please crawl out your window farewell angelina absolutely sweet marie fourth time around um there was so many it was hard to narrow down
2: which ones i was i was surprised when i reread it to see how how much i liked can you please crawl out your window i mean Mm -hmm. i do but you know i think i over i i overrated in the book
1: and farewell angelina is one that's nice to get uh coverage on because it's you know, still generally an obscure song, um, and
2: yeah, and, and very, and a very, a very weird recording in his 1960s pantheon. I mean, you know, it it doesn't sound as if it ought to have been on any of the album.
1: and it wasn't. Um, yeah. To let time march on, we'll move to Blonde on Blonde and and cover a little bit because that um, that may be where this chapter ends, and like a conversation. For Blonde on Blonde, as you did on our podcast for Time Out of Mind, you named the four major works, and uh, I thought we'd talk, we would talk about them. So here's the first.
0: The greatness of One of Us Must Know is to do with vague but dramatic impressions. It carries in its music an overall structure. It is manifestly magnificently alive, like some once-in-a-lifetime party, and aptly the lyric impinges as if it's being delivered at a party, the voice rising and falling against a backdrop of bubbling noises and motion. The music flows over you in waves, so that linked to the party impression, the song suggests itself fleetingly as a rock equivalent of the party Scott Fitzgerald creates in The Great Gatsby. One of us must know is like that. Not in its people or its social orientation, but as regards its rhythms, its movement, its life. It breathes with a kind of majestic sexuality. It holds your attention with a symphonic sort of warmth. The music never stops rising and falling to complement this. Ordinary small words, signifying little on their own, are caressed into a loving but subservient eloquence by Dylan's voice.
2: I'd like to say, uh, without sounding too pleased with myself, that that, that's an example towards the end of that, of what I can do with words when I'm writing about Bob Dylan's words and voice. Yeah. And really that's all I want to say about that song at this point. Yeah. But, you know, in general, um, the chapter is... Dylan's use of language towards complexity, and certainly blonde on blonde uh, in most ways gave every impression of continuing that that movement into into a more complex language than than certainly the early work. I do remember, though, when I first heard it, uh, which was in New York City. I was in New York in 1966 for the first time I was staying um, in an apartment on the edge of where Broadway meets the beginning of Harlem and uh was fantastic um, to be there then um 106 degrees on Fifth Avenue in August at the time and um, and I saw blonde on blonde in a shop window and bought it and um, and when i first played it in this apartment that i was allowed to stay in um a lot of it seemed quite simple a lot of it seemed um more like pop music than he had ever done before there's a lot more sort of songs about baby and love and stuff you know but that's just that's just uh the adjust the sort of adjustment that you have to make from one Dylan album to another, especially back then, and that's not at all to deny the complexity of language that that he that he throws at us on this on this album. It just seemed um, partly because it was just so hip, you know. Part of the hipness we know retrospectively comes from the fact that it's an album completely saturated in the blues, but at the time it just seemed like nothing else that had ever existed. Uh, it it brought up among other things, and this is partly my disquiet about its popness, perhaps uh, to start with. One of the things it does is it challenges what people still thought of as a great divide between high culture and popular culture. You know when a song like Visions of Johanna starts saying, the one with the moustache said, geez, I can't find my knees, you know. I remember seeing that live in Liverpool in 66, and people were going, is this still all right, you know? Um, And that's because we had all been, despite being so hip, we had all been, you know, inculcated with this idea that uh, that you were supposed to either be on the side of, you know, Beethoven and Goethe and Jane Austen or on the side of Marvel Comics and, uh, you know, I don't know, Bob B. Socks and the Blue Jeans. And um, and Bob Dylan uh, really challenged that. He knew better than that. but but I think in, in knowing better than that, he owed a lot to the beat poets because they had been doing that earlier. So the second
1: song on your list of four is uh, Memphis Blues Again. So let's listen to two short paragraphs about that.
0: Beyond being an exciting rock music performance, Memphis Blues Again is at least as great as one of us must know. The narrator is someone just trying to get by in modern America. Someone trying to get by, that is, without shutting off or closing up. Someone who sees a lot happening around him, but can't discern any pattern to it, nor any constant but meaninglessness. Someone who, in this situation, stays more outwardly vulnerable than he needs to because he retains a yearning, however vague, for some better kind of world.
2: Well, Shakespeare, he's in the alley With his pointed shoes and his bells Speaking to some French girl Who says she knows me well And I would send a message To find out if she's talked But the post office has been stolen the is yes. I mean, that's what. Oh, mama! Can this really be the end? <laughs> <this really> be <laughs> to be stuck in Mobile with the Memphis Blues again. Um, you know, they're, they're, although the every verse describes the meaninglessness of what he experiences, he 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 manages to dis, manages to describe himself as as a sort of very benign well-meaning, um, innocent, who struggles to understand any of this chaos around him, um, but but wishes that he could. But then towards the end, because Bob Dylan is, you know, hipper than that, he grows weary of, of this. And uh, and so he ends with, oh, Mama, can this really be the end to be stuck inside of Mobile with the... Uh, you know the bit, and the bit about uh, the bit about having to go all these, go all the through all these things twice. The bit about having to go all through these things twice. That's the last defeated, heartfelt plea. Surely there's something better than this. Surely I don't have to just wade through this chaos from here on in. Get me out of here. There must be a better world out there. It's
1: interesting that several of these we've talked about, but certainly everything you just said, is the um, coming to grips with the loss of the optimism. <laughs> it's like, okay, yes. now, I'm, now here I am. I, I, I'm not optimistic, and now I have to deal with the fact that when I really look around, these are the things I see. Yeah. The next major work you just mentioned, here's a passage on Visions of Johanna.
0: The mixture of serious and flippant language, the mixture of delicacy and coarseness, the mixture of abstract neo-philosophy and figurative phraseology, the ambiguity that begins with the song's very title, because Johanna is not just a woman's name, but also the Hebrew for Armageddon. The humor, the intensive buildup of the song's scope, all this is pressed into the service of a work of art at once indefinable and precise. It is, not for the first time, hard to say what the song is about, and yet it impresses us saying a good deal, and in doing so it engages a great many of Dylan's distinctive strengths.
1: That's a good paragraph, Michael.
2: Thank you. It's a beautiful thing, though, isn't it? I mean, it it begins so beautifully in this hot room in New York City, and... um,
1: They've kind of timed timed a blackout to uh, the writing, which just puts another thought in your head there that, you know, wouldn't have had.
2: Uh Uh-huh. What I remember particularly is, is hearing that live in Liverpool in 66, because, as I've said before, it wasn't only completely new to the audiences then. It was like no other song they'd ever heard, you know. Many, many verses, 14 lines per verse. And uh, and just dealing with everything, uh, you know, the all-night watchman, the girls, the D train, everything, and then and then just lines of great poetry, like um, the stuff about the light bulb and the electricity and the harmonicas and the head of the mule. Ah, oh, it's just fabulous. Yeah.
1: You also say that the click that Dylan provides him with is precisely the kind of tiny detail that it that is large part of Dickens' touch. Dylan gives us the same cartoon precision deftly sketching in the night watchman's mannered essentials.
2: Oh uh, yes, I mean that's that's probably something I've um, never noticed again in all these decades. but it is true that that the click. Of the night watchman's torch is uh, is a lovely small touch, and uh, and I do think that's Dickensian. In, in one of the one of the great things about uh, Dickens is is that sort exactly that sort of detail. I don't suggest that um, Dylan has ever particularly paid Dickens much attention. Um, I have no idea, but um, but. I would like to suggest that most people should, um, and uh, and certainly they should. Uh, they should certainly relish and take their time with and absorb Bleak House. If no other,
1: I think they're all songs that people, you know, hear more than they understand, and then these little glimpses of of oh, meaning yes. or connection help a lot.
2: Absolutely, yes. Oh, well, good. Um, Yeah, Sad-Eyed Lady of the Lowlands. Go on, then. Read that bit if you'd like to.
0: To turn from visions of Johanna to Sad-Eyed Lady of the Lowlands is not only, as earlier implied, to turn from one major song on Blonde on Blonde to another, it is also to turn from a success to a failure, and a failure no more explicable than most things to do with Dylan's work. It's long, it's attractive, it's puzzling, it's ambiguous, and Dylan's voice on it is very beautiful. But it isn't one of Dylan's great songs. All the same, the intention behind the song was clearly a major one, and the recording is prominent enough to merit a special attention. It is also directly after Sad eyed Lady of the Lowlands in the chronology of his released recordings that Dylan draws back from this ever thickening undergrowth of surreal, elusively complex use of language, after it he begins, in general, the harder process of paring down toward a new simplicity.
2: You read the main text there, but you didn't read the footnote, and this is—I um, <laughs> just my only response to to that quote from my from me. Is uh, to to read out the footnote that I okay. stuck on the end of that because that that passage was written um, fifty years ago. Yeah, the passage you've just read out, and then this footnote was written a mere thirty years ago. Okay, <laughs> and yeah. it says, when I read this assessment now, I simply feel embarrassed at what a little snob I was when I wrote it. In contrast, and paradoxically, when I go back and listen after a long gap to Dylan's recording, every ardent true feeling I ever had comes back to me. Decades of detritus drop away and I feel back in communion with my best self and soul. Whatever the shortcomings of the lyric, the recording itself Capturing at its absolute peak, Dylan's incomparable capacity for intensity of communication is a masterpiece if ever there was one. It isn't like listening to a record. It enfolds you to use a word from the song itself in a whole universe. Amen. Excellent.
1: Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I've 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 a number of times felt. Bad in retrospect that the, that we didn't find a way to make the footnotes both larger and more in context. <laughs> it was just a logistical thing in the book because they the book would have yeah. gone to you know back to 500 pages. But um, yeah, I, I do want to encourage readers of the newer old edition uh, to to d- dive into those footnotes as Michael just showed. There's uh, great rewards there. <laughs> um, as you've said before, that whole you arguing with yourself is an interesting uh literary technique.
2: Um, also, uh, if I might mention it, there's um there's a much more recent piece of work of mine about Sat Eyed Lady of the Lowlands in my 2020 book, uh Outtakes.
1: Yeah, well, so that, that brings us through. I mean, just just barely touching on it here, but a a major chapter of the book. We're obviously headed to some more major chapters ahead, but as we've been doing in this series of chats is looking at the transitions and flows of, of what Dylan's been doing is that it's after blonde on blonde that he, that he pulls back a a significant change in the kind of writing and words that he uses. Uh, Because even in Dylan's world, the old stuff never stops because it's still brought out in concert and played and, that yeah. creates this this mixture yeah. that makes it hard for us to separate this stuff. We're, you know, we're about to go from blonde on blonde to, to John Wesley Harding and Nashville Skyline yeah. and self-portrait in a very different um kind of language, at least from his pen.
2: Yes, we are. And um and that thing about the about the the gap, there's a time gap as well, isn't there? Because you know. 1964, he releases two albums, The Times There Are Changing and Another Side Of. 1965, he releases Bringing It All Back Home and Highway 61 Revisited. 66, he releases Blonde on Blonde, and then An Extraordinarily Long Gap by the Standards of the Industry. John Wesley Harding, uh, technically released on December the 27th, 1967. But to all intents and purposes, a 1968 release. Two years, I mean, you know, two actual years. Um, that determination to uh, not do a follow-up has served him pretty well down the decades, one one way and another.
1: It is a good, is a great chapter for everyone to uh, spend a lot of time in. Anyway, thank you, Michael, for going through it.
2: Okay.
0: Did you enjoy this show? Then please rate this podcast and leave a review. It really helps. Also, sign up for 7 Days, our free weekly newsletter that puts all the top Bob Dylan news and links into your inbox every Sunday. Use the link in the show notes. Thanks for listening.